0: All right. so tonight we're going to take a look at these uh, eight verses, as we've been doing, and uh, each week I've been trying to give you a particular characteristic of the heart that I think is being exemplified here. Let's let's step back for a moment. We've we've gone a long way in Psalm 119. We have only a little bit left to go, but I want to step back and remind you what this whole thing has been about. Uh, God's Word in my heart, that's what we've been calling it. Uh, The Word of God was given, not just that we would know that it's there and be curious about it. And it wasn't just given that we would have an intellectual grasp of it, but so that we would store it up and treasure it in, in the deepest part of who we are, which is what the Bible means by heart. The the part that thinks, the part that feels, the part that desires, the part that chooses. Uh, it's that God's Word would be so stored up in that part of you that it would begin to shape your life. or as They famously said about John Bunyan that if you cut him open, his blood bleeds bibline. Uh, He bleeds Bible because he was so steeped in God's Word that no matter what he was doing, whether he was speaking or or acting or whatever, uh, it it had the aroma of the Lord from Scripture. Don't you want that to be true of you? That's what we've been going through. It might be surprising to you that we're just now, after all these weeks, getting to this topic, because it's, in a sense, been run throughout the whole thing, if you've you've noticed. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the praying heart, and you might say, well, man, we're we're almost 20 letters into the Hebrew alphabet, and you haven't talked about prayer yet? Well, in a sense, we've talked about it every week, haven't we? Because almost every verse of the psalm is a prayer addressed from David to God. So he's writing this about God's word to God. He's been speaking to the Lord this whole time. But it's here that he kind of pulls back the the curtain so that you can see what's going on behind it. And he says, look, this is what I've been doing the whole time. I've been praying. In fact, my whole practice of life is to pray in this certain way And every time I've prayed or every time I've persisted in prayer in this way, God comes through for me. And so David is giving us somewhat of an anatomy of prayer here, how prayer works, what it takes to become a praying person, and and so forth. Or to be more specific to your outline, he talks about the pre-commitment of prayer, the pattern of prayer, and the power of prayer, which we want to look at. Uh, one by one today Uh, in any relationship good communication is essential wouldn't you agree but I'll, I'll say this depending on the importance of or the critical nature of that relationship communication may be more or less important right in other words the more important the relationship is the more critical communication is the more high stakes the situation the more critical it is to communicate right uh, John Piper, years ago, gave this analogy that I've never forgotten about prayer. He says, often we use prayer like one of those old uh, house intercoms. Remember they used to make these little intercom systems in houses where you could call from one room to the next? I always thought that was so cool, by the way. My aunt has one of those, and I always thought that was, you know you made it when you have that, that in your house. Now Now we just sit in separate rooms texting each other which is another level of sad, but we do it, don't we? Well, back then they had these little in-the-wall intercoms. You push the button and come to the room. I've got something, you know, I want you to do something. Uh, Piper says this is the way we treat prayer, like an intercom in a luxury resort where we feel like we're dialing in for more room service. So the level of... Like, need the level of desperation is very low, right? We've got all we need. We just need a little more champagne or caviar or whatever. Uh, Piper said we should be thinking differently. Prayer is like the walkie talkie in the soldier's hand on the front line trying to get back to supply miles away. Do you see what I mean? the the more critical the relationship the more critical the situation the higher the importance of the communication yes absolutely which part prayer is like the walkie-talkie, is like the walkie-talkie in the hand of a soldier on the front line calling back to the supply you know center uh, miles back uh, hey we need fresh supplies we need more troops we're losing out here give us the strategy we don't know what it is tell us what to do next Versus, hey, I'm out of caviar in room 542. Uh, Which, you could take or leave that. You can't take or leave the other. And uh, David, I think, thinks of prayer in that latter category. He he agrees with Piper's analogy, I think. So let's look together at the pre-commitment, the pattern, and the power of of prayer. First of all, prayer is a pre-commitment. Or better said, it requires a pre-commitment. On our part. Now, sometimes we have this, um, I think, a mistaken idea that things that are planned or things that are structured or things that are committed to are less heartfelt because they're structured and pre planned and committed to. Uh, we have this idea that the spontaneous is the heartfelt, don't we? especially for some reason in spiritual things. Maybe it's because we have this overly mystical view of how God works in our lives and how prayer works, but for whatever reason, we think the most heartfelt prayer is the most spontaneous prayer. When I have to put it on the calendar to pray, it must mean it's not very heartfelt. Well, I want you to notice what David says in verses 145 to 148. He both feels it deep and has already committed to do it at certain set times. It's, it's a part of the rhythm of his life because he's committed to it before he's ever in trouble so that when he gets in trouble, he's already got the commitment there. He's already got the ready schedule of prayer. Uh, notice the, the heartfelt nature of it. He uses three words to describe it. Prayer is crying with his whole heart, verse 145. I cry with my whole heart. That's pretty deep. That's pretty genuine and heartfelt. Uh, Verse 146, I call to you. That's also heartfelt. It's one person calling to another, David calling to God. Very personal, very heartfelt. And then in verse 148, he describes it as a meditation on God's promise. And we've noted this many times in the series. Meditation is a big word for David. It means to seriously... Deeply and over really kind of a long time sit there and stew on God, stew on him. Uh, you might uh, call it, and I like to think about it this way, he loved to waste time with God. And I don't mean it's really a waste of time, but you know what I mean. He, he liked to just leisurely take his time in prayer. In other words, David loved prayer, and he, he felt it. And yet notice, verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. My alarm clock goes off before the sun goes up. He didn't have an alarm clock, but whatever that was for him, I I make it a point to get up so that I can get to prayer before anything else starts. And then at night, verse 148, before my eyes go to sleep, before the watches of the night, which is referring to the the hours when people normally sleep, the watches of the night, the deep parts of the night hours. Before that ever happens, my eyes are awake. Why are they awake? So that I can spend leisurely time with the Lord, so that I can meditate on His promise. David is both passionate Heartfelt in his prayer, desperate in the way he addresses God, and planned, committed, scheduled. If someone called David and said, David, hey, I got this thing I want you to do before dawn. David says, I'm sorry, I've already got an appointment. David, hey, I've got, I want you to come over to this place right before you go to bed. You know, At 11 o'clock, I was thinking we'd go out and shoot some pool. David, no, sorry. I've already got an appointment. With who, David? With God. It's my prayer time. It's the time when I practice crying out to the Lord and laying all my needs before God so that no matter what's going on in my life, it's always there. It's always ready. Now, isn't that good? I I think there's something freeing about thinking this way. That spontaneous things are not necessarily spiritually superior to things that are made by habit? After all, think about this question. This is a critical question. How do you become a person that prays spontaneously? Right. Isn't that interesting? In fact, it's that way with almost anything in life. How do you become someone who does anything just spontaneously? You practice it. You make it a habit. You do it uh, on the regular, Um, right? Is there anything in life that, that someone can learn to do just by second nature that they didn't first learn to do by a disciplined, structured, like, commitment to it? I don't think so, or at least there's very few things that fit into that category. Uh, somebody once said, "Learning to pray is like a child learning to speak." I think this was Eugene Peterson who uses this uh, analogy, and I think it's a good one. He says, "You know, how does a how does a kid learn to speak their own native language? How does that happen? They hear it, they listen, and it's really amazing, actually, to think about that they just somehow learn how to speak." Um, how long does that take? Over a year, more than a year, because, you know, at a year they're like dada, mama, you know, dog, and things like that, but to actually form sentences, paragraphs, uh, to write, how long does it take? Years. Years. And, you know, actually the way that that the human mind is, is designed in language is it's already got in it sort of this idea of the structure of speech. And a child, when they're hearing people talk around them and talk to them, they're filling in naturally those things that they're hearing into that already sort of laid out structure that's wired into the brain. The human mind is very a marvel, isn't it, that God designed. Well, if Eugene Peterson's right, if, if Christians learn to pray in a similar way that children learn to speak, here's the thing, you can't go straight from nothing to fluency. Without that long period of kind of awkward trying and listening a lot and observing, being around other people who pray, well, being steeped in Scripture. Um, that, That was Eugene Peterson's point in making that is it's not us who talks first to God. It's God who talks first to us. And and only by by listening to him a great deal do we know how to even go to him and speak back. And so David, um, you know, probably from early in his life, all that we know of David suggests he was a young boy who fell in love with God as a young boy. David had this habit of making time to be with the Lord and to pray, to spending the time that was necessary to become a person of prayer, to have a praying heart. Uh, He was a man of spontaneous feeling about the Lord. He had lots of feeling that just gushed out of him for the Lord. But he was that only because he had a regular appointment, a regular rhythm with God. He learned the language by being around the Lord and around the Lord's Word. Any thoughts about that first point? I, I would love to hear your feedback on Prayer as a pre-commitment. Before we move on, Clint. Right, indeed, yes, that's right. Yeah, so being motivated by your love for for God is certainly very important in prayer. Um, even that requires a pre-commitment to do it, though, because, you know, there are, we, we know that in relationships where we love someone, we still can neglect conversation, can't we? We can neglect nearness, we can neglect paying attention, amen, especially in our modern time where, honey, 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 huh, you know, <laughs> uh, what, what, you're talking to me? I've been talking to you for 10 minutes, you know. Uh, we do that with even the people that we love, and, and we, do, we can do that very much with God unless we're careful to stop. Now, I hear it all the time, um, and I've said it a lot, man, I would pray so much more if I wasn't so busy. I wish I wasn't busy. One day, I won't be as busy as I am now, and I'm just going to pray. Thoughts? Right. I think Martin Luther, I remember him saying, um, I have too much to do not to pray. That was the way he said it. I have too much to do not to pray. And that is the way David thought about it. Do you think David was busy? Anybody in here the king of a nation? Any of y'all? Anybody the commander-in-chief of the armed forces? Nope. Right? Right? That's, I mean, why do you think David had to get up before dawn to do it? Why do you think he had to wait until the very end of his day to do it? Because probably that's the only time he had. Uh, and he could have easily done what, what we all are tempted to do, uh, snooze, 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 or let me go turn in early tonight and not worry so much about ending my day with the Lord. But David was, was clear. He wasn't going to do that, he, or at least not as a pattern in his life. He had committed himself. Because prayer is, of course, a pre-commitment. Think about Jesus' life on this, too. This is a very cool thing. What, what are some of the things it says about Jesus and prayer in the Gospels? He went out alone, went out alone to a desolate place to pray. As was his custom. As was his custom. Um, on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He went to the desolate place alone. He got up before it was light, it tells us, and went away. Even when people were looking for him, he went and hid <laughs> so that he could pray. It's pretty cool. This, this pre-commitment that was in David is also in da- great David's greater son. And it's in, it should be in us who are united to... All right, let's look in the second place at the pattern of prayer. The pattern of prayer. Again, we're going to focus here on verses 145 to 148. We'll get to the last part in just a second. But in that first part, you see a similar pattern to his prayer between verse 145 and 146. Uh, I want you all to look at those two verses and, and notice the second half of those verses where David is actually making his prayer. What do you notice about the pattern of it? I'll give you a second to look at that. Right, trying to get his heart in line with God. Um, what's he asking for? That's the first thing he does. Answer me, Lord. Save me. See those two requests? Those are his requests. Answer me. Save me. That's very general. I'm sure David had more particulars than that that he brought to God, but for the sake of this Psalm, he writes it down generally, probably because he knows everybody has their own particular things that they're going to bring to God, and he wants us all to feel free to do so. But all the prayers that we pray can kind of boil down to those two things. Answer me, save me. But then not not any not that much longer after he gives those requests, does he then follow up with his reason for requesting it? This is critical. To all prayer. What's his reason? Ben has already hinted at it. Obedience. Isn't that something? God, answer me. Why? So that I can obey you better, more. God, save me. Why? So that I can observe your testimonies. And right there in those two little snippets of David's prayer, you see a pattern for all prayer. You see this in many of the prayers recorded in Scripture. You see it in the Lord's Prayer, the same two-step process. I'm I'm bringing my needs to God. I'm asking Him to intervene. I'm dependent on Him for everything in my life. But it's clear that I'm coming with His will and His glory in mind. I'm coming as a person who knows my life is about obedience, it's about conformity to the will of God. I'm not asking to spend it on my own pleasures, merely. I'm not asking so that I can get what I want, or as we said this morning, I'm not planning, then pray. You know, and then bringing to God my plans and saying, God, oh, get out your great rubber stamp and stamp my plans. Instead, it's God... Come to me and give me those things I need so that I can do what you've called me to do. I can be the person that you've called me to be. Without either of those, prayer falls flat. Or, as Jesus said, if you pray anything according to my will, you will have it. What's the implication of Jesus saying that? If you pray anything according to my will, it'll be yours. What's the flip side of that? Right. If you just pray for your wish list or if you just pray for simply to spend it on yourself, there is not a guarantee that you'll get what you want. Now, sometimes God does give us those things that aren't good for us because we... Think we want them and need them, and we pitch a fit. Uh, we're going to actually see that um, next week in our sermon on Samuel. Israel is going to pitch a fit about a request that they have that God does not want to grant. You remember what the request is? Give us a king like the other nations. We want to be like everybody else in the world. God, you're keeping us out of the UN, and we want to be in the UN. You know, whatever, whatever it was back then. Get us in. Get us to the table. And God says, you really don't want that? And they said, oh, no, we do and we shall. And God said, okay, I got your king. Sometimes he does that, but that's not, I I wouldn't necessarily call that an answer to prayer per se. I would call that more, well, I would call that discipline for praying amiss so that our hearts would come more into line with what God wants, which is what God does with Saul, too. He gives them Saul so that they'll long for David. He gives them the king they want, and I'm starting to preach next week's sermon, sorry. He, he gives them, I'm going to have to save some of my bullets here and be careful, but he gives them the king they want so that they'll want the king he wants them to have. And that's what God does with us. Sometimes he answers or doesn't answer a particular prayer so that we will start To want what he wants for us. But when we ask according to the will of God, Jesus says, God is not a stingy God. God is open handed, God is generous. Uh, In fact, in God's great plan for our lives, you, you don't even know how many things God has appointed to bless you with, that He's appointed to bless you with through your prayers. Or somebody's prayers for you. I mean, if you sat down and tried to map that out, I, I don't, I mean, first of all, you'd be overwhelmed immediately, I think, at how vast it is. But then I think you would quickly give up and say, that I, I, don't, I can't even fathom what God and His secret counsels has worked out about giving me this and that and the other that I need because I prayed or someone prayed. And God just simply loves to bless his people, especially to bless them when they pray. And so David says, I'm dependent. Answer me, save me. But I'm dependent so that the will of God can be more fully done in my life, so that I could become more obedient to God. And so how this helps me, you know, in terms of shaping my prayers, is it, It calls me off of two things that I often, two mistakes that I often make when I pray. The first one is that sometimes my dependence gets muzzled in my prayers because I'm thinking in a self-reliant way, right? So I mentioned this in passing, I think, in both services this morning. I can never fully remember what I say at 9 or 11, but... Um, I think I said it this in both services, that uh, sometimes I pray and say, Lord, help me with this. I know I can't do it on my own. But meanwhile, I'm working overtime to get plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, plan F, even G sometimes, because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, if it's going to be, it's up to me. M- my dependence is being muzzled by a heart of self-reliance. And I'm not actually coming to God saying, God, save me. I'm saying that, but I'm not actually saying that. That's a mistake, and I think, David, we should hear him to be very sincere here. When he says, answer me, he means, answer me. When he says, save me, he means, I can't save myself. There is no plan C or B or A. There's just you saving me. Save me. Then there's another mistake that I often make, and that's that my sincerity in prayer gets withered by a self pleasing heart. My sincerity in prayer gets withered by a self pleasing heart. Oh God, help me to be the man that I want to be. In my heart, I'm thinking, make life easier for me. Oh, just ease the pain, give me comfort. More caviar in room 352, please. Even though I may be saying, Lord, thy will be done. Have thine own way. In my heart, I'm thinking, I've got a list of things. I know I I need these things, God. I'm convinced of it. And so it withers my sincerity. I'm saying one thing, but I'm actually doing another. And I always catch myself in my insincerity when I pray something, and then don't get the answer that I thought I should have gotten or in the timing I should have gotten it, and I respond in frustration, anger, or despair. Do you ever get frustrated with prayer? Do you ever get angry at God for not answering your prayers a certain way? Have you ever despaired at prayer because, well, God doesn't listen to me, apparently? When you see those things, you ought to notice those are telltale symptoms that your sincerity in prayer has been withered by probably a self-pleasing heart. Every one of us is dyed in the wool self-reliant and dyed in the wool self-pleasing. That's what sin means. That was the condition in which God found us, for which he sent his son. And it's still very much in us, even as Christians, to please ourselves and to rely on ourselves. And so what is the pattern of prayer? The pattern of prayer is a rewriting of the heart and a rewriting of the mind. Therefore, as one writer, one of my favorite writers on prayer, actually, you've probably never heard of him, Ole Howsby, like O-L-E, Ole Howsby. He's got a book, it's called, it's a very great title, Prayer, beautiful title, Prayer. And it's one of the best books ever written about prayer, in my opinion. And he has this old chapter where he says, prayer is work. It ain't easy. And I think this is what he's getting at, what I'm saying right here. It's, it's work. It's taking what is dyed in the wool and trying to expunge it from the heart. It's trying to plant in the heart new things that aren't naturally there. And the soil is hard, and you've got to really bring the pickaxe against your selfishness. And the way you do that is you follow the pattern of prayer that the Bible teaches, utter dependence and a a single-eyed focus on the will of God. And so the Lord's Prayer doesn't start with, give me, give me, give me. It starts with, hallowed, 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 your kingdom, your will. That's where it starts, and then it gets to give me. And it's clear by the time you get to give me, you're asking for the give me so that the will of God could be advanced. That's the genius of Christ-centered prayer and spirit-driven prayer is that it's a rewriting of the self-reliant and the self-pleasing heart. David says, I wake up every, every day, I go to bed late so that I can pray, and here's what I pray. Save me, Lord, so that I can obey you. Hear me, Lord, so that I can obey you. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Glory be to God alone. Use me in that. Give me the things I need to be a part of that process, a part of that plan. Answer me for your sake. And what David is doing when he prays is he's he's hoeing the garden of his heart, that stubborn heart. And now you see a little bit of what God meant when he said, David is a man after my own heart he did that he committed himself to that do we do we do we come against our self-reliance and self-pleasing or do we coddle it self-reliance little you know Uh, the Puritans talked about darling sins or bosom sins that is sins that we coddle and protect don't touch this this is mine this is my bosom sin well, self-reliance and self-pleasing are some of the most prominent bosom sins that you have to bring the pickaxe against, or they're just going to run rampant. And prayer is the number one way to come against it, if you, if you pray according to this pattern. And so let's look lastly at the power of prayer, which now we're going to finally get to the end of this section, which is uh, verses 149 to 152. We see what the power of prayer is. Let me read you a quote from our friend Ol Howsby. Do you want to hear a little bit of this book? I think it's the best. Here's what he says. Here we see why prayer is essential. Why is prayer essential? Here it is. It's not for the purpose of making God good or generous. He is that from all eternity. Okay, So you're not making God more good or more generous by praying. Nor is it for the purpose of informing God concerning our needs. He knows what they are better than we do. Nor is it for the purpose of bringing God's good gifts down from heaven to us. It's He who bestows the gifts, and by knocking at the door of our hearts, He reminds us that He desires to impart them to us already. No. Prayer has one function. Here it is. And that is... To answer yes when he knocks. To open the soul and give him the opportunity to bring the answer. This throws light on the struggles and the strivings, the work and the fasting connected with prayer. All these things have but one purpose. To induce us to open our hearts and to receive all that Jesus is willing to give to put away all those things which would distract us and prevent us from hearing Jesus knock. That is, from hearing the spirit of prayer when he tries to tell us what God is waiting to give us if we would only ask for it. Prayer is opening the gates wide that the King of glory might come in. The King who's already come to us in grace and is already set on willing to share. And that's what David pictures in verses 149 to 152. These verses are bookended with statements about God. God is unending. He's unchangeable, it tells us. Uh, first of all, in verse 149, he takes refuge in God's unchanging love and justice. Your love is steadfast, God. Aunt, hear my voice. By your justice, give me life. Two things about you that never change. Your love is steadfast and your justice is steadfast. He ends in verse 152 by saying God's word is unchanging. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. In other words, God, when I come to prayer, the, the, the first thing that I, that I enter with and the last thing I leave with is a reminder of who you are. This is not me changing you. This is me being reminded and opening up my life to see who you are already. The God of unchanging love, the God of unchanging justice, and the God whose word never fails. Faithful. And when I see that God, it gives me a different perspective on the things that I'm praying about. So in verses 150 to 151, he sees his need... The other way around. Instead of seeing God, which is what we tend to do, we see God in light of our needs and wants and problems and circumstances. He's now, through prayer, learning how to see his needs and wants and circumstances in the light of God. The other way around. And so, look at what he says in verses 150 and 151. They who persecute me draw near with an evil purpose. Here they are. They're getting closer. They're closer. They're closer. They're coming. I've got to do something. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Isn't that how your heart sounds a lot of times? Here it comes. Here it comes. Things are going to go down. Not going to be good. It's going to get worse. Worry, 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 worry. But notice through prayer, verse 151, what he says. What does he say? But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. This is the one thing prayer is really about at the end of the day. Opening up the human heart to God. So that our human hearts, scared as they are, distracted as they are, could learn how to see our lives in light of Him. To adopt His pattern, His desire for my life, His vision, rather than my own. And when we do all those things that had us in a tizzy, they're coming near, they're coming near, they're coming near, they're coming near, suddenly just sh- But Lord, you are near. They're near? I know, but you are near. Has anybody ever hiked through the mountains before? How would you rate that? Fun level, scale of one to ten. Children included, included, yes. What do you think? (laughs) I actually like it, but yes... On a long hike with kids, it can, yeah, some things can happen on, on those hikes. It, it's fun, but it's also painful, isn't it? And depending on how big the mountains are and how far you have to go, it could be even more painful than you were bargaining for. Um, have you anybody in here ever flown over a mountain range in an airplane? I've flown over some big ones. For example, the Canadian Rockies. I flew over those one time in an airplane. Those are pretty big mountains. But you know, from an airplane, ain't that bad. I went right over that pass easy. I ate chicken Alfredo as I went over it. But if I'm standing on one side of the pass on ground level looking up at, hey, Hey, boys, girls, we we got to go there. I'm not bringing out the chicken Alfredo. I, I'm, you know, it's, it's a lot different from that perspective. Oh, what needless pains we bear. All because... We do not carry all our needs to God in prayer. It's God who gives us the airplane vision, the the vision from above. God, yes, I've got persecutors, David said. They're coming very close, but your love never changes. Your justice never changes. Your word is founded forever. And so they may be coming near, but here's what's greater. You are near. You see, prayer is is massively beneficial to us. But here's the ironic thing. Prayer is most beneficial to us when we go to it for reasons other than simply to benefit. The degree to which we go to it because we just enjoy God is actually the degree to which you will be benefited by it. I'm not saying you won't be benefited if you go just in desperation, just sobbing. I mean, you will be. And God is very gracious about that. He's very patient with us. But what David is growing in over time is learning how to just say, God, I love you. And I, and I just love wasting time, so to speak, thinking about you, with you, talking to you. And in that, he finds a most uncommon peace. They are near. Oh, but you are near. Amen.